This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Stephen Blush, who's the author of Bust and Balls, World Team Tennis, 1974 to 1978, Pro Sports, Pop Culture, and Progressive Politics. Stephen, thanks for being here. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm hoping you could start by talking a little bit about how you got interested in World Team Tennis, especially in the 70s, and how this book came about. Sure. Um... Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I really come out of music, and I'm, uh, I wrote a book called American Hardcore, uh, which is, you know, a pretty important book about the punk rock explosion, and, um, the re- and I made a film about it, too, that went to Sundance and came out theatrically, and, and you know, cut a long story short, I'm not name-dropping, I'm just trying to say that um, the reason that this was able to cross over to a bigger level was because... In the micro, I was talking about punk rock. And in the macro, I was talking about radicalism in the Reagan era. You know, so I'm always looking for like a larger story. You know, I think most rock, the problem with rock books is they're just about rock. You know, it's it's a culture. It's a subculture. You know, you know about zines. I mean, I was, I ran Seconds Magazine for over a decade. I mean, I, you know, my commitment has always been to music and culture, you know, and connecting of the of it all. I lived in New York, downtown, part of this whole downtown explosion in the end of the last century, and it was like just this incredible meeting ground of um, musicians and artists and activists. Um, you know, before we even used those words or even thought about it, but it was just like um, a melting pot. So, you know, I'm thinking of lots of ideas, you know, there's a lot going on there. You know, it's not just like, who was the guitarist of the band? That doesn't matter. You know, you could, you know, you could write a read guitar world if you want that, you know, that's not what I'm, what I'm doing. So, um, Leaving here, uh, I kind of, in, in punk rock and especially hardcore, um, well, I should say especially punk rock, um, you kind of play down your, your uh, athletic, uh, your, your jock side when you, when, you, when you come out. And I always downplayed it very hard. But I was, I was always very interested in sports and I played and I, you know, I was a, a high school letterman and I got into my college because of being pretty good. So I, um, I've always had an eye for that. And my favorite <clears throat> subjects are music, sports, and politics. So um, uh, cut to about five or six years ago, I was um, uh, turned on uh, cable TV here in New York. And um, Madison Square Garden has their own network called MSG Network. <clears throat> and they had... Um, footage of the New York Apples team from 1978 playing the Seattle Cascades. And that's not the important part, but it was Billie Jean King was, uh, they brought her in for commentary. And she talked about uh, Studio 54. She talked about Elton John. She talked about um, gender equality in sports. You know, and I was, uh, and, and she didn't really even talk about tennis, you know, and it really just kind of set me on this path because 
here was the merger of sports and politics and, you know, music too, because Elton John's big, one of his biggest early hits was Philadelphia Freedom. And that's named after her. That's like a tribute to Billie Jean because she played for the Philadelphia Freedoms. And that was kind of like the bicentennial time. And, you know, um, Vetus Gerolitis at Studio 54 and um, David Gates of Bread wrote um, Mother Freedom, which was, you know, Bread has kind of a bad connotation from their 70s music, but they, you know, this killer rock song that's like, you know, the Eagles or America or like, you know, one of those kind of things used to blare at all their games. And um, so anyway, and, you know, Billie Jean is talking about, she's not talking about sports. She's talking about like a political vision of a sport. I mean, this was not like there in the 1970s, there had been like the ABA American basketball association that had the red, white, and blue ball. And they invented the three point shot and the slam dunks. And they had lots of black players. And, you know, it's kind of like um, if you ever saw semi pro the movie, uh, it's, it's basically like what the culture we're kind of talking about that was, kind of going on. And uh, so I, I was just fascinated by this, this, this interview. And then I, I went on the interview, I went on the internet and there was almost nothing. There was like hardly any information on this. And, you know, and I'm, I'm started going into old newspapers. Uh, I'm a big believer in newspapers.com or newspapers.org, whatever that is. I, I'm subscribed to that. And I always reading old newspapers and just learning their perspectives. If you look at the back of Amer- of Bustin Balls, the last like 30 pages are all sources. And I read every one of those, you know, and I took sources. There's like 2,500 sources in this book. It's outrageous. In fact, when I was in touch with Billie Jean, uh, you know, you have to make contact on someone when you're going to write a book about them. You don't want them to be the last one to learn about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I contacted her and, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think she was like too excited about somebody digging up basically her biggest failure. I mean, right. She's had this incredibly successful career in this league. She did. She created this league that makes perfect sense today. It was women and men. The, the main thrust of world team tennis was right. It came right after her match with Bobby Riggs, the battle of the sexes. So it's men and women on equal footing. And the, the representative match of world team tennis was mixed doubles, men and women playing together. And you get into this whole other thing that these are teams and uh, tennis is an individual sport. And Billie Jean wanted to spice it up. So she wanted people to yell and scream. And, you know, and a lot of these were like very genteel tennis players. I mean, aside from all the freaks that were in this league, um, it was also like, uh, you know, a lot of people couldn't handle it. I mean, people don't want to, about, you know, there's like, you know, there's a story in the book of where Leslie Hunt is talking about, like, uh, you know, she's trying to serve and like everyone in Pittsburgh's yelling, you know, like, hey, Dyke, put on a dress, you're wearing shorts, you know, like that kind of stuff. You know, so it's like really like crazy, you know, you know, intense, you know, or just yelling or just yelling at somebody when they're about to serve, you know, anything. So, you know, and, and even in the first match, like, um, so the, the league starts, um, I'll get, I'll just get away from the league history, but so anyway, so this, uh, the story of the book is that I went on this journey and I just went and discovered and read everything on the internet and everything on newspapers.org, you know, all those sources. I just kept digging and digging and digging. And the more I dug, the more I found, you know, it's like the the weirdest one to me was in 1970. The league went from 1974 to 1978. The book is called Bustin Balls, World Team Tennis, 1974 to 1978, Pro Sports, Pop Culture, Progressive Politics. Because and that I think I'm that's a pretty good picture of what it is. You know, Billie Jean was definitely busting balls with what she was doing, and and it's and if you by the way if you take the book and you turn it on its side, you will see the ball. The word balls is actually the Wilson tennis ball logo. So you know we were very committed to this. You know, uh, capturing 
uh, the culture. So in, um, you know, the more I read um, about 1974 to 1978, you know, I just kept digging and digging. I mentioned, oh, so I mentioned I was got in touch with Billy and um, I sent her my chapter on the uh, Philadelphia Freedoms. And it's like this incredible story. It's they only play one year. They're the best team in the league. Uh, the first game is like a VIP event sold out Spectrum in Philly. And by the end of the year, they're like giving away tickets. And uh, Billie Jean's like angry. You know, she's pissed. You know, she came to do this big thing and like the league was failing in front of her. So I'm telling this story, but she can't say anything because I'm presenting her with 120 sources in a 10 page document. You know, it's, it's clear that it's all true. You know, I'm not, there's no, and I'm, I'm not, there's no value judgment in it. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, my favorite musicians um, and actors and all that, they, they have very erratic careers. You know, it's like how many really awful albums has Neil Young made, you know, or Bob Dylan. I mean, they've made some really bad records, but you know, it's just part of a process. You know, and you just kind of, you're along for the ride. That's At least that's my view on it. So um, I was just fascinated by this story. I, I was about to say my most, the, the, the one that was most telling, the most, in 1978, the last year of the league, the Cleveland Nets moved to New Orleans because they had played it. The year before New Orleans, Cleveland was like the worst place in America in the 70s. And like ugly, you know, toxic, you know, you, I, don't, I don't have to describe it too much. So somehow the owner got Bjorn Borg to come play for the team, who was like the most beautiful, blonde, European man like on the planet. Like, I don't know how he did this. But uh, so and Bjorn Borg played one year and split, basically. Um, but during that year, they went down to New Orleans. Cleveland was horrible. Then they go to New Orleans, which was like a hot, beautiful town. And they start drawing these. They played a couple of games there and they draw huge crowds. They drew like, you know, 15,000 or 18,000. And they were doing them in, this, in the Superdome, which is the, the, the arena, which is like a 60,000 seat arena. So, you know, you close off a corner of it and it's, you know, it looked good. So they moved the team to New Orleans and they're suddenly drawing like, you know, a thousand people in this 80,000 seat stadium. It's like a postage stamp, you know, going on. And they got this team with Renee Richards and John Lucas, the basketball star, you know. So it's like a black man who's the number two player in America under Arthur Ashe, after Arthur Ashe, um, who kind of just wanted, even though he was like, you know, he became a, you know, was he a Hall of Famer in the NBA? I'm not sure, but he's you know he's still involved. He's still a coach in the league and all that. Um, but you know he and Renee Richards became best friends. You know, and they and they were oh the team. The thing about this this uh, New Orleans team was that they were kind of barnstorming. They were, when they played down south, they were called the Sun Belt Nets because that was like the start of the Sun Belt, uh, the the rise of. The, the hipness of some of these southern cities. And um, so they would play like really redneck towns like Lakeland, Florida, Biloxi, Mississippi, and Jackson, and El Paso, and, and it, hanging out at the bars are, you know, Renee Richards and, and John Lucas like chumming it up and getting into bar fights and, you know, fending off people. And usually it was, people dropping the N-word on John Lucas and Renee Richards knocking them out. So it's really like, you know, it's a cool, it's just a cool story. There's so many like cool characters and um, it just goes so far beyond music. So my long-winded answer to you is that I just saw something very, um, uh, you know, much bigger than sports. Yeah, and you and you get it when you talked, you got it, some of this, but like just the start of this, um, 
can you talk a little bit about how they were even able, like what was happening during this time that this could even come to be, right? Because there was a bit of scandal between um, the world team tennis and the sort of official tennis folks. So how were they even able to get this sort of off the ground? What were, you know, what made it happen? You're you're leading into their biggest problem was that Mm -hmm. uh, it was a case of legitimacy. They, they all, starting a new league they were again they weren't even starting a new league they were starting a new sport right i mean i I, the first chapter of this i call it cultural revolution through sports you know and uh you know it's really like that's what was going on you know there was like that issue but the 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 powers that be of tennis were like old school europeans and they were very traditional. They hated Eddie. I mean, they didn't even like rock and roll. I mean, they were like so far beyond it. Um, I come. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Dogtown, the the film, but it's it's. I, I I saw a lot of parallels in this scene when I started this book, and of course that crosses back into my hardcore punk rock roots. Um, but uh, you know, this very straight laced kind of sport gets kind of like turned upside down by a bunch of renegades, right? So this doesn't quite happen. It's like a 30-year revolution for tennis. I think you're starting to see some of like the more colorful characters now, but that was not happening then. And they saw that the powers that be were, the most powerful forces were like the French Open, the Italian Open, and Wimbledon. Well, pretty much, and, and Australian too, but... Um, and that's all. Um, so, but the the key characters in that one were at war with uh, World Team Tennis. They they saw it as an affront to everything they did from a business standpoint. They thought it would hurt their tournaments. From uh, a behavior standpoint, they found it ugly Americanism, uh, and they saw it as the death of their their proper sport. You know, which is of course why I love this story, right? So. <laughs> So, so Billy Jean comes in there and, you know, they tear it up. And let me tell you, um, they never resolved anything with the, with the French or the Italian, but they did, um, take their mid season break during Wimbledon. And in the, that 74 to 78 years, um, I forget what years they were. I, th- I want to say they were 76 and 77. Um, there's like, um, eight major titles. Is it no six major titles? And world team tennis players won four or five of them each of those years. So it was like, a, you know, uh, if people know their history of women's sports or women's tennis, um, there's the original eight who kind of start the um, original nine, original eight, sorry, um, who start who start the Virginia Slims, right? And uh, I think, all but one or two of them played world team tennis. Uh, Rosie Casals, you know, really important character. If you ask me, she's like, um, you know, Latina, gay, uh, fiery, militantly political. You know, she's the um, color commentator. If you ever look back at the um, Riggs King match, she's the color commentator. Uh, and, you know, she's great. She's, she's so awesome. You know, she had, she was like five foot six or something, you know, she was tiny. She was just fiery, hit the ball so hard, you know? So there was like, you know, there's just like so much power going on in this league, you know, by the, by 1977 or so it's um, like every night it's like Billie Jean, Martina, Chrissy. I mean, like it was on, you know, it was really like, and, and they had, Rod Laver and Ily Nastasi and uh, Vetus Gerolitis and Jimmy Connors for a year. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was, from a tennis standpoint, it was outrageous. And, and then the other part about this story, which is kind of interesting, is that, you know, this all feeds in with um, tennis was the biggest sport circa 1970. It was basically everybody thought it was going to be the biggest sport in the world. It was in America. No doubt. I mean, there wasn't even like a doubt about it. If you look at like covers of Sports Illustrated, or, you know, it's just basically predestined that tennis was going to take over America. So um, a lot of that had to do with uh, 
know, some of it had to do with the yellow ball being in, introduced, but it really had to do with the rise of indoor tennis because then all of a sudden everyone around the country could play this sport. And that cha- that was a real game changer. And that had started, I guess, in the 60s. Um, so um, the idea of th- those factors uh, for people to invest in an indoor tennis league was not that outrageous. The problem was what you mentioned is that the the powers that be were out to destroy them. So they never, so everything was tainted, everything. So it took, if, if they did get ads with somebody, it was in spite of that. If they got on TV, it was in spite of that. They never got a national television contract, which now you would get the television contract before you sold franchises almost, Right. Because that's what the, the only reason that sports are powerful these days is like it's kind of an artificial construct. It's like it's not like people could afford the tickets to go to most of these games. It's that there's these crazy TV deals that fund these ridiculous contracts, but they didn't have any of that, right? So, so you have that, and then you have these owners who really don't have much experience in sports. Who are um, I'm, I'm describing this era where there's all these renegade leagues going on. There was this idea that peop, people wanted options in their sports viewing, but they really didn't. I mean, there's no evidence that you know every one of every alternative sports league has failed, pretty much, or been merged. At best, it's been merged, like the AFL into the NFL. But um, you know, so so in that year. There's something like there's NBA, ABA, and basketball. There's NHL and WHA and hockey. Uh, there's Major League Baseball. There's NFL and World Football League football. Uh, there's this and uh, there's a, a there's the rising NASL of soccer, and there was um, a lacrosse league a lot of money was put behind but and and then here's world team tennis i think in the baltimore chapter they talk about baltimore having nine pro sports teams in 1974 i mean how how's a market like baltimore without a television contract you know how how do you support that right so so there's just a lot of mistakes that went on you know um what's interesting is um Every owner who got involved in the league lost their shirt, but um, two of them used it as kind of like their very expensive lesson in how to own a sports team, and that would be um, Jerry Buss, uh, who uh, the Buss family owned the L.A. Lakers. His daughter Jenny Buss was like 14 years old, working in the office. That's how she got her start in sports, um, and. Um, uh, the original Boston Lobsters were sold to a um, a merchant named Robert Kraft, who owns went on to have the New England Patriots. So, um, who are you know billionaires of, of magnitude? In fact, um, there's one player who I found was the. This is a funny one. The star of the Boston Lobsters, Ian Tyriac, was a former hockey player. He was so tough, he played for the um, Romanian national hockey team. He got drafted by the Philadelphia Flyers, who if you know anything about hockey, they were just a fighting team. So they drafted him, but he didn't go. The Broad but, Street Bullies. Yeah, exactly. Right. So he, they just saw him as like one of them. And he, um, there's footage if you look up Ian Tyriac or, but, and you just see him. Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, so you see him (laughs) fighting, like, in matches against the Soviets and stuff. I mean, he's so tough, you know, and he's like, literally, the guy gets his job because he eats glass in front of the owner, right? I mean, it's like, the guy is so tough, but he, Ian Tyriac, is now probably the richest man in Eastern Europe. I mean, he basically... After the fall of Romania, he somehow owned banks. So he's like, he's a, I mean, he's richer than, he's richer than Bob Kraft. I mean, I tried to get to him. I had no, no way. Actually, oh, here's great. I did find the closest I got to him. I wasn't able to get to him 
was I talked to the guys at the Transylvania Film Festival. <laughs> they knew him because he was Count Dracula. That was his nickname, Count Dracula. He really was from Transylvania. So anyway, I'm just giving you color. This is, this is the story. I mean, I could go chapter by chapter, but it's really just like this. And I'll answer any questions, but it's, it's really just this story of this merging of uh, all these interests and all these colorful characters and how they end up there. The funny thing I thought found about the league was like, okay, you want to make it like a team sport, root, root, root for the home team. But, you know, these guys are from, like, Romania and Australia. And, you know, maybe you'll get a Californian if you're lucky. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, you know, like Chris Everett, they actually got her to play for Florida, right? For right. a minute. But yeah, yeah. yes, none, none of them are from. And and I thought it was really fascinating, too, that it wasn't only, te- right? That it, like you were talking about, like we've got the tennis players, but we got the football players and the hockey players. It's sort of like, hey, Want to try this? Come along. Let's mm-hmm. play. And, yeah, yeah. and this kind of sort of like, you want to do this? Let's go. Yeah. So bringing them all in. And, you know, talk a little bit about the like the physical book itself. Because the book itself is like, I feel like I'm in the seven, right? <laughs> like, it's full of pictures and images and just like how it is um, put together. So I'd love for you to like talk sure. because it's gorgeous. Like, Yeah. Well, I, I worked with the best... Uh, um, art director I've ever worked with. Um, and also, um, you know, I mean, Feral House did such an amazing job with this. I do have to, I, I do want to point out that it did uh, just win a, a design award for PGW or uh, Publishers Group West. So um, we were very honored by that. Um, yeah, that's no, an incredibly beautiful book. It is a period piece, right? You know, it's like, if you look at American hardcore book or my film, it's a period piece. You just drop yourself in that time. And in, and in the hardcore days, everything was just black and white and stark. You know, and everything in the, because it was a reaction to the 70s, which everything was colorful. Uh, I don't know if I said, but that first time I saw that footage of, with Billie Jean commentating on it, but the look of this match, the color of the uniforms, the color of the indoor court. I mean, these earth tones and crazy, you know, combinations of stripes and colors and bad hair. And uh, it was awesome, right? You know, so I was, I was really kind of caught up by that. But it, I mean, I think if you look at this book and you put American Hardcore next to it, they're kind of similar. I mean, in terms of the art direction, it's really just I am obsessed of, obsessive about the, the photos matching the matching where you are in the editorial and they have to match it. Uh, the, I had a few things. One thing I knew that was, I was very clear on the reason American hardcore was able to achieve, achieve such levels and still hold its standard is that I know my audience. I'm not writing war and peace for these, for a bunch of punk rockers. You know what I'm saying? There's lots of pictures. There's lots of, you could go in the bathroom and read it and, you know, pick it up or you could pick it up on page 98 and just start reading or, you know, it all. So that's what this is. Um, if you follow what's going on here, which what I tried to do was there's large pull quotes on almost every page. And my feeling was that if you scan the book from cover to cover and just read those pull quotes, you, you would know the story, right? So I'm looking at it from, or if you just looked at the photos one by one, you would be able to kind of follow the story. So there's like a few different ways you could read it. Um, but the important part is, is that when you're reading about something, you want to see that, you know, it can't be two pages or eight pages later. It just doesn't, you know, I've, I've always had this war with um, art directors we don't really see that one. This is the first art director 
Ron Kretsch was the first art director I've ever worked with to actually read the text and have feedback on it, you know? I mean, he read every word of that, and he was... We worked very well together, you know, and he was really... um, He worked as hard as I did, you know what I'm saying? Like, he... I was I was really impressed. Uh, you know, he like I mean he put I I actually don't know the words for uh, the um things like umlauts. There's a bunch of other ones, but he put them all in there, you know, for Ilinastat, the one with the little mm-hmm. half moon moon crest. I don't know what you call that one. Is there a word for that? I assume there is. Probably. I don't yeah. know. I, <laughs> yeah. I should know what it is, but I'll... <laughs> yeah. But you know, but you get my point. There's lots yep. of umlauts wherever possible and all that kind of stuff. So he he really brought the character full full length with that too. So, but um yes, uh focus on um keeping the photos and the words together. Uh Oh, here's the other part to this. Um the images themselves. I um, I found some stuff on the web. In fact, I just heard from somebody who was one of the only sources I saw on the web early on, and he's, he had just bought the book. And I was telling him this story was that, yeah, I took all the scans off of the internet, right? But then you can't really use those in a book. You know, they, they don't print right. So I basically, I think I'm, I'm probably the world's largest private collector of world team tennis now i mean i i I own all this stuff you know i bought it's really cheap (laughs) you know it was really cheap until this book came out (laughs) you're like that won't be (laughs) oh yeah no i mean things were like and i I, there's a lot of stuff i didn't get because i was starting to get to this point where like you know i'm never going to get my money back on this so i'm just not going to offer anything you know (laughs) so it was like if something was like ten dollars i try to get them to sell it for me for eight you know, it was like that kind of thing. And, and usually it was like a dollar, you know, or it was like, no, how did they do that on eBay? It's like three ninety nine that you bought it for a dollar. The rest is shipping. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of that kind of stuff. Because who, who wants a yeah. poster of the 1976 Pittsburgh triangles, you know? <laughs> no, I was you wondering, know? that was one of my questions because there are so many, like there's photos, there's the patches, right? There's, yeah. so I was wondering like, yeah. Okay, so there's there's three there's three sources. There's one is kind of what I'm describing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really into like press shots. Um, I, I bought like whole series of press shots from people. There's historic images, who you know sell all their images, but half their stuff half this stuff was mislabeled. Like I just figured out what it was. You know, would say like. Um, Renee Richards, New Orleans, 1978. But then I would kind of see, you know, that was the uniform. She was wearing the uniform or, you know, it was clear that like that was the bench of this, her team. Right. So things like that. Um, so that was one source. Uh, I stumbled upon an estate sale of a photographer. Um, actually, through some, I actually found a guy who was selling individual black and white slides on eBay, individual ones. <laughs> so I, I basically, I bought the whole, he had got it for, he bought it from an estate sale and I bought it from him and I got a transfer of copyright from him because, you know, I, he owns the slides. He's giving me the slides, but I'm turning them into photos, you know? So it's like, so the, the owner, and, and it's been given up by the photographer. So it's clearly my photos now. Um, you know, legally. Um, and I'm not going out to sell them or anything like that, but I just wanted to make sure that that was, I, I just bought the lot. So all those really cool black and white shots, especially with the ones with the frayed edges, those are the, that's the slide marks, you know, the, 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 of the negatives that we, that I individually scanned all 400 of them. There were actually more, but it was starting to get a little ridiculous. Um, and then uh, the other part was uh, I have befriended the original owner of the Boston Lobsters, um, Ray Chicolo, who um, sold his team to Robert Kraft. He's, um, I think he's the biggest Volvo dealer in America, something like that. He's like, like everybody in New England knows who this guy is. It's Village Volvo. Um, and he's got like many locations and has village 
whatever other cars. I don't even know what he sells. But um, he's like an 80 year old man. And uh, he's like, yeah, I, I w- drove up to Boston to uh, my friend Tony Mann and I drove up to Boston to go visit him. And uh, he had like boxes. He brought out some stuff for us, which were just like boxes of negatives. Like, I don't even know what these are. He goes, this is some woman in 1974 who I paid to take these pictures. But he also had cool stuff. On top of that, he also had like ties and like jackets, lobsters, like every bit of stationery in red and black you could imagine, you know. So it's kind of, uh, he kind of hooked this up, but he had these photos and all the color photos in there are those slides. And um, they were just amazing because like you didn't even, we didn't even know what we had. I had no idea what they were. And, but I was, but, but I got so good at it that I was like, oh, that's the Baltimore batters against the Toronto, you know, uh, <laughs> Toronto Royals, right? Toronto Buffalo Royals, right? So I, I was able to figure it out. After a while, I knew everybody's faces. I knew the co- I knew what the colors of the teams were. Um, one of the big things that I do here is uh, there's so much information. I try to encapsulate it all. I told you about the ways that I made it easier to read, you know, in, um, in terms of how you could follow it. Uh, I also open every team chapter with kind of like um, a factoid box, I guess you would call it. So that kind of tells a lot. I, I kind of tell the entire story of the band where it's like um, the name of the team, when they were, where they played, who their stars were, uh, and then, you know, some interesting facts about them. And they all have them. They all, they all have this incredible thing. So, and uh, again, the, uh, Ron Kretschy, art director, really nailed that part too. Um, if you notice, it's also color-coded on the side of the book. So if you're reading your chapter of the Flamingos, there's a little pink hue to it. So uh, you can just know that that chapter ended. And then when it goes into the green of the Pittsburgh Triangles or the <laughs> whatever, you'll know, you'll know you're at the new chapter. So, um, yeah, so I'm really proud of uh, this. It's a very, again, it's not, uh, you know, it's interesting, like the feedback I've been getting, it's like uh, some of these uh, sports people who are getting the book or, you know, they, they're like, oh, yeah, this guy's a, a rock writer. And if you read it, it's kind of like a rock and roll book. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's, they, got, they got it. You know, I'm like, okay, you know, so. I'm crossing over these weird worlds and it's, um, I, it's going well. I thought it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, people aren't as activist and tolerant and open-minded as I thought they were. But, uh, <laughs> like, I mean, if you can't tell what the story is as a journalist, I don't know really what, the, you know, mm-hmm. there's no point in me trying to sell it because it's like, it says what it is, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I, I had the word progressive politics right there. So if you're an activist and you can't, and you're not motivated by it, I can't, I, I don't know what you're looking for. You know, it's a women fueled gender, uh, diverse, um, tolerant, uh, radical, um, you know, uh, not conservative, uh, movement, right? Like a, a, so, a cultural revolution through sports, like I said that first chapter title. Well, I, I mean, I think tennis is a tough sport, and I, I, I talk about with, you know, students and that about Billie Jean King a lot. She's one of my mm-hmm. heroes because tennis is a sport where men and women get paid the same, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Women... T- and largely like, because of World Team Tennis, by yep, the way. Right, because of her, because of what she did, because of what she pushed for, um, and, but we still have these like issues with like what women should wear when they're playing tennis or that women get fined, um, you know, for taking off their shirt mm-hmm. and changing into another shirt or whatever it might be. And so it's really interesting. So this is great because it like filled in some of that other history about like, but the activist, the ways in which Billie Jean King really, really like pushed for some of these issues that, you know, I like the player coach aspect of world team tennis, right. And talking about like um, having to sort of figure that out and coaching and, but, but tennis is tough because 
it still wants so you know in some ways it wants that like we need to be prim and proper and we can't have tattoos and yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really. In fact, what I've discovered with this book is, and, and this is basically my entire crowd right now, is that there's um, this kind of underground, ten, this tennis underground. There's a, I don't know if you've ever read Racket Magazine, but they are, um, they're like a fan. It's like a fan. It's like a '90s fanzine, but it's like high art tennis, and it's about being kind of a tennis outsider. You know, it's basically what the whole thing is about. Billy loves this magazine. They just did a 10-page thing on reprinting a chapter of of the Bustin' Balls book in there. Um, There's there's this black tennis podcast called Reels Tennis Fans. There's um, Passing Shots podcast, which is like young and exciting. Uh, You know, there's all these like... um, you know, there's this kind of underground of people who are kind of rock and roll, right? And they're kind of like, they are, you know, they're, they're subculture, whatever. I don't even want to, I'm not even using the word rock and roll. I'm just saying that they're not like that horrible conservative, you know, tennis world that I've, I didn't even think still existed, but it's still really powerful and kind of controls that sport for sure. Um, but I'm just going to keep busting, you know, I mean, that's, you know, I could see it's making, I, I could see we're making waves. You know, people are like, I started a, I just started a podcast called Jets, Nets, and Sets, as in the New York, all the New York teams and the New York Sets being the world team tennis team. And uh, I interviewed that Ray Chicolo, the, the Boston Lobsters owner in the first episode that, that actually just launched this week. So if people want to check that out for um, additional color. And I'm uh, working on a, um, uh, documentary film to go along with this. And uh, that's also where I bought all these incredible photos and clothes and warm-up suits. and Yeah, I've got all this stuff now. If you, if you ever wanted a Golden Gators warm-up suit or a, or a Baltimore Batters one, I've got them. But do you have that, like, the lobster mascot? Like, <laughs> Oh, you know what? Nobody could find that. I asked... I asked Ray if he had one. He's, he didn't have it. But um, uh, I would love that. Yeah, so as, as you're describing, he um, the lobster's mascot had a uh, pincer in one hand and a racket in the other. <laughs> it was very cool, yeah. Oh, uh, the best. So, oh, I mean, we, you sort of, add my, what my, usually my, like, final question is that idea of, like, what are you working on next? But which you sort of responded to, um, but are there is there anything else that you want to share, promote, put out there? Uh, anything else with the book? You know, we sort of covered a lot with the book. Anything else that you want to get at? Final. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I continue to um, write. I, I'm, I'm finding uh, I've started a podcast network, so I could all my various interests kind of intersect. I started. I'm calling it Blush Media Network. Um, uh, it focuses around uh, something I did called the last year, um, before the pandemic, I had started filming a series called, uh, the art of the interview, uh, where I was like interviewing, uh, underground figures, be they like, I don't know, the photographer, Bob Gruen or Lenny Kay from Patty Smith group or, uh, Vinnie Stigma from, uh, uh, agnostic front or, you know, whatever. So, uh, Jimmy G from Murphy's law, you know, people I knew, uh, I said, Bob Gruen, the photographer, you know, like whatever, you know, people who are like downtown New York characters. So, um, I, I was kind of working on, on that stuff. And then the pandemic hit. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of, uh, been, I've launched the, this podcast network and, uh, the main one is something I started, um, uh, this, this launched about a month ago. Uh, uh, and the first interviews, uh, the, the main thrust of it is the art is the American hardcore podcast. And the first one was with Al Burrell from SSD control. And, uh, the next one's with Vic Bondi from articles of faith. And, uh, there's a bunch of VIPs coming up. I shouldn't mention, but, um, so anyway, so there's the American hardcore podcast. There's the art. Uh, this is all video, by the way. Video and, and, and of course, by because of that audio. 
but uh, it's available video, made as video. Um, so there's the American Hardcore podcast. There is the Art of the Interview, which I would describe to you. Uh, there is Jets, Nets, and Sets, which is uh, which I'm calling Hardcore Sports. And then um, I've launched something called The Leaf, The Leaf, which is heavy cannabis culture. So, so uh, that speaks for itself. And, um, and then I'm doing this thing called Rock History 101, where I'm taking interviews from the, my, I'm calling it interviews from the vaults. It's actually cassette tapes from my storage locker. But, uh, you know, like amazing interviews I've done over the years. I mean, like rock, major rock stars, you know, so, uh, or cult figures. So I just figure it was like, this is how I'm getting everything out. You know, I'm able to monetize a little bit. I'm, I'm able to be heard and seen. Everything I'm talking about um, cross-relates somehow, and it's all my world. And, uh, yeah, I just signed a uh, book deal for 2023, um, which is uh, uh, the working title is When Rock Met Disco. And it's like that incredible era of about 1979 where the rock bands went disco and everyone lost their minds. And... Uh, you know, there was like disco wars and uh, burning disco records and uh, Kiss ruining their careers. And, you know, like everybody like uh, and then the rise of punk and hardcore and metal, like all in reaction. And New Wave is kind of like a synthesis of the two. And anyway, so it's like a really pivotal, and weird moment in history. Mm-hmm. So awesome. You've yeah. got lots going on. Yeah. Never well, stop. Never yeah, stop. Well, you can't, right? So, um, they, well, I should ask quickly, what, like, what do you, th- I mean, you sort of talk about some of these things with tennis, um, you know, some of the more radical parts of tennis, but or progressive parts of tennis. But, do, I mean, do you have thoughts on, I, there is sort of a world team tennis, but not in this way? Like, is this something that can ever happen again? Like, do you yeah, see? Yeah, yeah. You know, world team tennis is, like, so here's the deal. World Team Tennis was this original concept, as I'm, I'm describing it. And then it's been relaunched, I think, five different times. And uh, it's basically the cult of personality of Billie Jean. You know, people want to invest in Billie Jean, right? So it's kind of an artificial construct, right? You know, it's not really like... I mean, I went to a, the New York match, and it was all like... I didn't pay for my seats, and they were all like free seats. I think I, I got mine through a either Bloomberg or Chase or like, you know, like somebody like that. And I sat in that section and nobody was sitting in the other section. So it's, and that probably paid for the whole, whole event. But um, that was a place that I think what you're asking though, is that this was a place in time, this, you know, uh, the politics of today would, uh, you know, there, there, let's just say there was a lot of shaming involved, you know, it was not like, you know, it was like old school sports. You couldn't, you know, I don't think that would really work. I don't think, uh, but there's a funny thing going on in tennis and I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not there enough to really um, be a, call myself the expert uh, on it. But um, there's the, they, if you watch tennis broadcast, they want to embrace something exciting, but they restrict the excitement. <laughs> and then, but the players are kind of, ex- are, are modern, which means they're exciting. Just, I mean, I don't, I don't know how exciting, um, you know, some of these people really are, but you know, like I, I see the interviews and I'm, I'm pretty impressed with, you know, how bold some of these, these characters are. Like I've seen these advertised, there was, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, there's sports programming, like they're, they're pulling it all out of the vaults because, you know, they have, they don't have anything. And like, I, I saw some of this tennis stuff and they're like, promote it there was this one tennis event where they were promoting tennis players like running through the crowd coming you know running down to the court and i'm thinking like well that's what world team that's what the world team tennis concept was right like rock and roll like excitement and all that but but they but they kind of they're they're a little too scared of it um let me put this into perspective the u.s open makes more money than the super bowl that's a boat you don't want to rock. You know what I'm saying? And you know, and they don't have the expenses that the Super Bowl has. 
you know, they're just like, they, they just go to, you know, once a year to New York and they're making more money than the Super Bowl because everybody invested in it is like five star, you know, it's like, you know, Cartier or BMW are sponsoring the event, you know, so yeah. it puts you on a whole other, you're, you're, appeal, um, you're appealing to a whole other thing. Now I'm talking to, I, I reconnected with a friend of mine who I knew her as a, like, uh, like a, white girl with blonde dreads who used to manage hip hop groups for rush management, you know, like back in the day, like serious hip hop groups. And now she's like one of the heads of, uh, um, of, uh, USTA go figure. Um, but you know, she obviously had this background, right? So, um, and she's in Texas and, uh, She's telling me, you know, she contacted me after the book came out. She's like, oh, my God, this is, like, incredible, right? And she's telling me about all these people and, like, how it's all, like, you know, they're, like, I, I said, we got to, she wants me to do an event there. I'm like, well, when there's a pandemic over, we'll talk about it. But um, we were talking about, there's a place, uh, one of the great stars of World Team Tennis was John Newcomb, the tennis player. And he has a place um, in a town called New Braunfels, which is kind of like outside of north, about an hour north of Austin. And it's the, it's been there since the seventies. And this is the reason he came to play in the league was the John Lucas tennis camp. And she was saying that it's, if you go to, we should do something there because it's straight out of that movie players where it's like, you know, the young, the old women look, you know, hunking out looking at the young hug players and you know it's like this whole like world that still exists you know and and how her crowd would you know are all drinking and partying and all love world will love busting balls and you know that's why we have to do it so there's obviously something going on i mean nobody some, somebody of that stature is not going to say that to me you know so there's a disconnect i guess what i'm saying is between there really is something cool happening in, in tennis, but whether the powers that be will let it happen, uh, they have a proven track record of shutting it down. So we'll see. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's been really great talking to you again. This is Stephen Blush is the author of Bustin' Balls, World Team Tennis, 1974 to 1978, Pro Sports, Pop Culture and Progressive Politics. Thank you for being here on New Books Network. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. 